Welcome to the Traveling On Radio Show, your premier source for travel news and information, featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, the Traveling On Radio Show. Well, good day, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on the Traveling On Radio Show, soon to be known as World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we are broadcasting from our studio right outside of our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. On today's show, our focus is the legacy of the 2010 Vancouver Winter Olympiad, where we spent an electrifying two weeks covering the Games. First International Luge Federation General Secretary Sven Romstad joins us to talk about the unique sport of luge and where it's headed following the death of Georgian Olympic luger Nodar Kumartashvili. Then Olympic Village Design Manager Roger Bailey stops by to talk about the new community, Millennium Water, which is setting new standards for sustainable neighborhoods as it transitions from housing athletes to becoming Vancouver's hottest neighborhood. Finally, Simon Fraser University's City Program Director Gordon Price shares his perspectives on his hometown of Vancouver, the game's legacy, and his unique insights on what makes Vancouver one of the world's most livable and sustainable cities. Although our domain will be changing soon, you can still email your comments and questions at comments at travelnradio.com. We're very excited about changing our name to World Footprints Radio, and we think you'll really enjoy the spectacular programming that we have planned. And as you know, we've mentioned several times before, this change to World Footprints will represent what our values have been all along, a celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. To us and many we've shared this great news with, World Footprints better communicates our values of sustainability, global citizenship, travel philanthropy, and volunteerism. And we're excited that you'll be joining us on this new journey. Also, too, we have to mention that the North American Travel Journalists Association recognized our show as Best Travel Broadcast for 2009. We're honored to receive such a prestigious award and hope that it's the first of many. Hopefully it validates the commitment we've made to you to bring you meaningful, transformative travel journalism. The sport of luge was thrust into the spotlight of the 2010 Winter Olympics because of the death of Georgian Olympic luger Nodar Kumartashvili. While luge has stayed close to its Nordic roots and close-knit culture, luge is growing and inspiring athletes the world over. We recently sat down with International Luge Federation Secretary General Sven Romstad to talk about where luge is heading after the Games. Welcome, Sven. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Well, it's it's our pleasure to uh, to have you to our show and. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to, to start off with is to ask you, how did you become, what is your journey? Because we talk about transformative journeys, and obviously this is a, this is a travel uh, show, but what, what was your journey to become the General Secretary of the International Luge Federation? Well, it started off that um, I'm originally from Norway, and I started luge when I was eight years old. And eventually qualified for the Norwegian national team and participated in it over several years. And um, I went, moved to the United States, and I was training in Lake Placid um, for for the Norwegian team. And happened to get injured, and was asked by one of the Americans to help train them a little bit on the side. And I did so, and they were very pleased. And before I knew it, I became coach of the U.S. team and coached. Um, the U.S. Olympic team in 1984 in Sarajevo. Uh, from there on, I went into the administration part of Luge, where I served as um, 
vice president of US Luge Association for seven years and then went on to the technical committee of the FIL before in 1994 I was elected as secretary general for the National Luge Federation. In your opinion, I know you've been uh, involved with uh, Lugin for a while. Is that a correct term, Lugin? Um, how has the sport changed during the years that you started off as an 8-year-old to now as a 29-year-old? Well, it's changed quite a bit. Um, I think that, first of all, you know, the notoriety of Luge has um, climbed over the years. I think uh, originally on very, very few people knew what Luge was. And to today, we're, we're probably much better known. Unfortunately, um, with the Vancouver Games, with the tragic fatality that we had during training, we probably even got better known, but not for the right reasons. But over the many, many years, we have risen in popularity and, and uh, people's knowledge of our sport. Sven, I'd like to explore more about the uh, origins of uh sport of luge and talk about the culture because the racers there are not that many racers who participate on your world cup circuit so it's a very close-knit group of world-class athletes talk about uh, the athletes and talk about the sport and the culture of it well we try first of all in the sense that because we have limited tracks around the world we have about 17 operational tracks now we have a world cup circuit and world championships uh, we try to hold the World Cup uh, circuit down to about 120 athletes just because we have to have a viable competition, not go on hours and hours and hours. Um, so you become a very tight-knit group. Um, clearly, the Europeans are the strongest uh, in the sport. Germany, Austria, and Italy being the three strongest ones. Then you have Russia strong, and USA has uh, come on very strong over the last several years. And Around that, you know, you have other traditional winter sports countries, but we have a broader reach now to the point we have uh, regular participation from losers from Australia, South America, um, and Asia. So, you know, we are represented quite well worldwide. Yes, and I just wanted to, to circle back. Uh, you, you mentioned, of course, the, the tragedy here in Vancouver and, uh, and how the, the sport has, has changed. I know that, that uh, however, because of your, your position as, as general secretary, this tragedy really hit home for you. It was, a, it was a personal tragedy for you. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you did behind the scenes and, and really how you, uh, as, a, as a, I guess, a father figure for, for some of these kids, how you are proceeding to heal? Uh, when the tragedy happened, um, the first thing we wanted to do was to caucus the athletes and the coaches what to do um we immediately made it clear that we're willing to go to you know whatever measures that they decided to in the sense that down to the cancellation which would have been a very sad time for us if that happened um, both the athletes and the coaches decided that um, they wanted to proceed um the biggest question was um you know from what start point um there were a lot of people, and I think a majority of the athletes, that wanted to go from the original starts, um, but there weren't consensus. So with it not being consensus, we made the decision that we would go to the lower starts. Uh, and I do have to underline that 
despite of going to quote unquote a lower start, you still had a very very viable competition. And tell us a little bit about what happened and how the King of Tongo became uh, involved in the Spirit of Luz. Well, from what I've been told, uh, it was actually Prince Albert of Monaco, who's a bobsledder, um, met uh, the King of Tonga and encouraged him to get involved in um, in winter sports. And I think Prince Albert focused on bobsled, but as it turns out, the King of Tonga did his homework and research and decided that luge is, is still a speed sport and a little bit less expensive, so he decided to get involved in luge. Uh, what transpired from there is that they selected out an athlete, uh, Bruno Banani, and literally on their own cost sent him to Germany, hired a German coach, and for the last two years trained intensively both on ice and off ice in the summer and Bruno actually came within four spots of making the Olympic team this time around or Olympic Games this time and um, they are committed to the next four years which were the original goal they had not anticipated in being so good so they're coming with a larger team uh, next year and um, are gunning for 2014 in Sochi. With interest in countries such as Tonga, how was the International Luge Federation helping to support the growth of the sport in nations, uh, non-traditional luge nations, uh, in terms of building that interest and engendering new support and perhaps finding one of these incredible athletes who might be out of games uh, from, from a country we least expect in years to come? Over time, and you say every single Olympic Games, when we get more exposure, we get inquiries from all over the world of people and new countries that want to start and be involved in the sport of luge. Needless to say, our financial resources doesn't allow us to help every single person that's interested in luge. What we try to do is to determine, first of all, we work through the National Olympic Committee. They have to create a federation and make sure that they're recognized by the National Olympic Committee so all the, the governance issues is taken care of. Uh, we then offer schools, training schools, with where we provide the coaches and um, the athletes participate in those schools. And if they pass those schools, they then we have an FIL team where they can participate subject to their talent. Um, and we try to, over their career, help out with accommodation, travel support, equipment support, coaching. So in a broad range of means, but at the same time, says we, we have to make sure that the, there's some financial means for countries participating because of, it does cost to travel around the world and participate. What advice would you give for younger children in some of these countries, and even the United States, our country? Um, how would they go about perhaps becoming involved with the uh, Luge Federation and training? Well, first of all, thanks to the Internet today, uh, you know, you can research it and, uh, you know, you can go on our website for the National Luge Federation. They can contact their National Olympic Committee. There's several means of finding out what uh, is available to them um, in the the area near to them. And Sven, I know, as we mentioned at the top of the this interview, you've been to uh, you've been involved with the Olympics uh, for a number of years. Is there one Olympic that Winter Olympic that really stands out for you? And how uh, how has your experience been here in Vancouver? The games that stands out in my mind is the 1984 games in Sarajevo because I was actually on the Olympic team, and that takes an experience of the games to a whole new level. Um, 
I think that as far as the Vancouver games, um, they're very well organized. I think, you know, they've had some transportation issues from what I understand and a couple of other things happening with the weather and so on. But overall, we have to work with these Olympic cities for seven years. Um, to be honest with you, my, right, my, my mind now is focused on Sochi. Vancouver is long gone, though we're in the middle of it. Um, and I said the staff that we worked with with Vano were amazing, and it just um, um, these games have been fabulous, absolutely top notch. Any any challenges uh, going forward the next uh, games in uh, in Sochi? Anything that uh, perhaps causes some not necessarily concern, but uh, but but some awareness as far as uh, planning, etc., for the next games. Well, we've already gone through our challenges with Sochi because of the original site and the bid document had to be changed because of environmental reasons. So we had to find a new site. We have to identify a site. Also, um, we recognize when the track here in Vancouver was originally supposed to be about 137 kilometers per hour top speed, we end up at 155 kilometers, which is fast, but it's not too fast and so we can our athletes can handle it but we knew a long time ago uh, once we came the saw what developed here in a track that this is not we don't want to go continue going that direction i think you know logically i think to a certain degree everybody wants to have the fastest the biggest and the best but we realize that we have reached the maximum of what, where we want to go as a sport so we have worked with sorchi to make sure that the track design there will lower the speeds down to about the 137 kilometer mark where we want to be they haven't we have we have, we have the design of the track already and that was done even before the game in vancouver and i expect them to break uh, ground here shortly and i'm heading over to sorchi i think in a couple of months here and continue on Want to take a radio crew with you? <laughs> if you want, it's a long way. <laughs> One last question. I know in the sport of uh, bobsled, which, of course, is, uh, is our mutual uh, acquaintance, uh, uh, Prince Albert, too, his uh, his former sport, there is a, a countdown and kind of a code, you know, when you're running, pushing, and, and, and I couldn't tell you. I just saw it on television. But when a loser is pushing the sled, is there something that they, they say before to, to kind of prompt them and, and kind of get them in a, a rhythm? Um, the bobsled start is really always a crucial one. It's very crucial in luge too, but probably even more so in bobsled. And it is kind of more of a I hate to say the start in bombs is more exciting because of we a loser is an individual athlete or a doubles and they sit on start handles and rock back and forth and push off and don't have the running experience so to speak so um i know individual athletes and individual doubles teams have kind of their own little set tradition that they do before they start but i don't think there's any universal code or anything like that we'll just say go team go then <laughs> Hello. Well, uh, Sven Romstad, General Secretary of the International Luge Federation, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, we'll be speaking to Olympic Village Design Manager Roger Bailey as we talk about Vancouver's newest green waterfront community that will take the place of the village after the Games. You're listening to Traveling on Radio, soon to be known as World Footprints, and we'll see you right after this break. 
sure to put Friday, April 9th through Sunday, April 11th on your calendars and join World Footprints Radio in New Orleans for the 27th Annual French Quarter Festival. This award-winning three-day event showcases the city's best live local music, cuisine, and culture, and admission is free. Enjoy nearly 170 musical performances throughout the French Quarter and more than 105 food and beverage booths from some of the city's culinary elite, making up the world's largest jazz brunch. For more information on the largest free music festival in the South, visit fqfi.org or foreverneworleans.com. making sure the air in your dream home is healthy for your family to breathe. Building a radon-resistant home is easy. Just ask your builder or go to epa.gov radon. A message from the U.S. EPA. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? to teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself. Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit peacecorps.gov. Traveling On is moving on to a new name. Soon, we'll begin broadcasting as World Footprints Radio, a name that better reflects our celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Our shows will continue fostering global citizenship and a greater social consciousness by promoting values like travel philanthropy, volunteerism, and sustainability. Join us on this journey to leave positive footprints and build lasting legacies one step at a time. This is the Traveling On Radio Show, bringing you a world of travel news and information. Once again, let's join your hosts, Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. One of the legacies of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics is the impact the Games will have in reshaping Vancouver as one of the world's greenest and sustainable urban centers. Roger Bailey, design manager of the Olympic Athletes Village, which will take on a new life as Millennium Water, the greenest neighborhood in North America, joins us to talk about the impact it will have in shaping a post-Olympic Vancouver. Roger, welcome. First up, how did the Olympics affect this project? Typical answer is to say it had no effect at all, mm-hmm. except to recognize that it was the motivator for doing it, right? Mm-hmm. But the actual context and of, of what was done uh, in terms of the development of this community really did not respond to the Olympic need. It responded to what the city of Vancouver has been looking at for a long time in regards to this land uh, towards the building of a socially equitable and sustainable community. And that's really where the whole thrust of everybody's efforts and work over the last four years uh, since we actually started to build the village itself and for the ten years before that, which was looking at actually how does this piece of land, which is you know, historically um, industrial, um, this, they, there used to be a large shipbuilding plant here, and they built uh, a lot of the uh, the merchant ships that were used during the First and Second World Wars for trans, uh, uh, taking uh, supplies and, and troops back and forth across the Atlantic. So a very large number of uh, uh, ships were built here. So this was a very large industrial land, you know, polluted uh, and... and um, 
obviously uh, kind of underutilized in mm-hmm. the heart of the city. And the, as the city began to look at, uh, you know, what to do following uh, the 1986 ex- exposition when the lands on the north side were, were redeveloped, um, and they started to look at this and, they, and, and began to build this concept of a sustainable community uh, to look at it you know, in a different way than had traditionally been dealt with on the other side of, mm-hmm. of, of the uh, creek. Um, you know, and, and, and the redevelopment of the downtown core over the last 15 to 20 years uh, has made a phenomenal change to the city itself. Right? Because what it's done is brought you know, a real community into the heart of the commercial precinct. Mm-hmm. After the games, Millennium Water will be used as a new community. What makes this a sustainable community? Well, I, th- I think there's a, there's a whole range of questions ar- around that here. Uh, and it, it, it really begins with this, this idea that instead of, of moving people out to the suburbs and, and redeveloping uh, or developing uh, what is you know, virgin farmland and, and starting to you know, broaden the, the community out, which typically in a lot of North American cities, um, and not just North American, I mean, you know, many, many cities, you see that spread of people moving away from the central core of the city. So this notion that we could come in and densify the heart of our city and build uh, you know, a significant residential uh, community into the commercial precinct, essentially what it does is means that you know, the resources that you have, the transportation and the infrastructure and the water systems and the sewage systems, which are all essentially somewhat underutilized because they're only servicing a commercial purpose, now service not only a commercial purpose, but an entertainment, a recreation, and a residential purpose. So that in itself, just that notion that you're going to develop uh, and build up residential communities in the heart of the city in in itself has a significant impact on resource and sustainability. Um, Come into the heart of Vancouver at 1 o'clock in the morning or come in on the weekend on a Sunday afternoon and that city is full of people, right, who are, uh, you know, engaging um, the resources that are there, you know, the commercial resources, the restaurants and the amenity spaces and the community centers uh, and the general uh, resources we have in the heart of the city in a very real way. Mm-hmm. Now, Roger, you had mentioned that this is the reclamation of a former industrial site, uh, Brownfield's redevelopment. Talk a little bit about what it takes to reclaim industrial land and some of the environmental considerations that had to be dealt with in making this project a reality? Well, this, uh, you know, a lot of, of, of particularly North American cities, uh, you know, they, they were developed and founded either on the railhead that ran through mm-hmm. them or on a, on a, water, uh, a water environment or waterway harbor uh, or a river, you know, around which the city clustered. And, and those transportation hubs, whether they're water-based or rail-based or road-based, um, really were the, the, the drivers for the development of an industrial heart in the city. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, so every, every North American city in particular is a, had, uh, you know, over, over the past decades had these thriving industrial centers. And then as land became more valuable and as uh, other uh, impacts started to uh, color the way industrial uh, development worked, uh, 
the, they either moved away from the heart of the cities or they were replaced by by international marketplaces. Mm-hmm. And um, so that left in the heart of every city uh, these quite large swaths of of industrialized land, which typically had been significantly polluted over the years. Um, I think we took a, a, a fairly innovative approach to how to deal with that. What we did is we went into the site and, and uh, gridded the whole site and then put a boreholes bore down and sampled uh, on a very tight uh, base, uh, grid base. Right? Uh, and, and what that did is it meant that when, as we excavated, we knew exactly what we were excavating. We were able to put it directly into a truck and send it to the right place. Mm. So we didn't have to you know, have somebody looking and doing tests on every single yeah. uh, truckload of material that came out of here. We knew where every truck was going to go, and we knew the material that it had in it, and we knew what had to be done with mm. it. And, and at the same time, we also knew what the costs uh, associated with the dumping of that material or the uh, remedial um, efforts made on that material were going to be. So this site is, is actually underlaid by a sloping uh, hard pan shale that runs underneath the city. So on, on, this, uh, on the back edge of it, it's probably some 10 to 15 feet below the grade. On the front, it's uh, up to 50 feet below, below mm-hmm. the, the grade. Uh, and what we then did is said, okay, we're going to excavate the whole site uh, and build two-level parking garages underneath there uh, in order to uh, facilitate... Um, that, that program to be able to remove as much of that as possible. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, you know, uh, it was it was the single largest uh, excavation project ever undertaken in Vancouver with the the amount of trucks that were coming mm-hmm. off this site. I mean, it was uh, quite a, quite a phenomenal undertaking. Right now, we're looking at the model of what is now the Olympic Village, what will be known as Millennium Water after the games and. One of the things that's unique about this project, unlike uh, a lot of the historic, uh, well-known pinpoint towers that have uh, defined Vancouver, is that these buildings are low- to mid-rise buildings, and they seem to be of a a more human scale. Talk to us about about some of those aspects of of the project. Well, as you you know, that... uh, a lot of the redevelopment that's gone on in the heart of the city has been the, a point tower mm-hmm. on a podium, and uh, the north side of uh, False Creek, Yale Town, uh, that's been the model of development for, for uh, uh, the last 10 or 15 years. And when the city looked then at uh, working on this site, uh, the early plans um, actually were for point towers on a podium. Ah. <laughs> and, and, and there was a lot of uh, time and effort put into that process uh, by a variety of different uh, consultants. And, and then there was a moment in time when uh, 10 of, of, the, of the city's leading architects and planners uh, all got together somewhere. I'm not sure which bar it was in, but uh, and, and they um, penned a letter to city council uh, recommending that uh, a different approach be taken on the north shore, uh, on the south shore of, of False Creek in the redevelopment of this area. 
Um, and that, that was to try and engage this lower form of development, um, to take a more European approach to it, uh, you know, tighter streets, mm-hmm. zero lot line buildings, courtyards, um, you know, quite different than, than what you see on, on the, in the Yale Town area. Um, and and um, at the same time, uh, you know, the land value that, because uh, this was city-owned land, the land value that the city uh, had here was obviously going to be impacted by the level of development. So there was a lot of uh, effort made to see in this form of development, uh, in a kind of more European model, how could you how could you increase the density to the point where you still met the economic aspirations for the project? Um, and council uh, you know, was, came on side with that, uh, those comments from the design community and, and eventually um, hired a, a, a second firm of planners to look at, at uh, uh, the overall development program. And, and they moved... Uh, this whole development uh, concept towards this more European model mm-hmm. of of lower rise uh, buildings buildings that as you as you observed uh, are kind of more intimate uh, they're uh, you know they're, they're, they're a different kind of scale in terms of the kind of community that they develop and and they i think in in the realization of that uh, program. Um, there are some really fine examples here of, of that uh, community relationship that has developed through the implementation of those kinds of projects, particularly as you, as you look into, you know, this is Parcel 6, so it's designed by Merrick Architecture in my office. Um, and, and um, you know, there's, there's, there's a real connection between the various different elements that make up that community, uh, and they are, you know, they surround a... Uh, in a private courtyard, mm-hmm. so this kind of sense of, of of space that belongs to you, and then this sense of public space beyond you, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in the design process, the city um, has put a lot of emphasis on public space. Um, you know, the investment they made in the in the seawall um, was significant, and and in this particular case, on this this piece of property, I think have done a brilliant job of of. Um, Bringing, bringing the public to the water, bringing the mm-hmm. water to the public, and uh, the kind of uh, granite steps that form uh, the inner courtyard uh, or the inner uh, inlet from, from False Creek are a very good example of that, um, as is the boating center, and there's going to be um, you know, uh, dock facilities where you can store non-motorized boating. So a, a, a big effort has been made by the city of Vancouver in terms of the public space. And at the same time, in, in developing that public space, they have uh, taken, a, I think, a, a, a very innovative and I would even say radical approach to the implementation of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, for example, all the stormwater here uh, goes into Hinge Park, into okay. a stormwater management system. Um, and, and Hinge Park, I think, is is probably one of the most delightful things that's been done around the city for a while because it's it's really a kids playground right mm-hmm. it's uh, you know it's 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 about educating children about the infrastructure that makes a city function right so you know the, the drain pipes that would normally be under the ground or above the ground right so you know kids can look and go oh, I didn't realize it was all that there uh, you know water has been celebrated as a uh, rather than hidden, mm-hmm. uh, and that's been consistent with the approach to the design of the buildings as well. Mm-hmm. 
In our conversations, you mentioned that the project just recently received certification from the U.S. Green Building Association as a lead platinum project and community. Talk to us about what that means and how this project really is at kind of the frontiers of green building in North America. Well, the the uh, Green Building Council, the U.S. Green Building Council, uh, has you know been the the approving authority for um, essentially green buildings for mm-hmm. for a prolonged period of time, and of course the, the sister organization in, in Canada, the Canadian Green Building Council, have been you know focused on uh, green buildings in in Canada. So the, what, the, what the U.S. have realized, though, and I think all of us recognize, is that uh, in, in, in order to, to really focus on sustainability, we have to kind of step back from the individual buildings, and we have to step back and look at a broader community mm-hmm. set of community issues. Because um, that's, that's, that's really where uh, the meat of the sandwich is. It's, it's, it's in trying to find ways of building larger living environments that are, you know, are, are, are good for you. Um, and so with the, what the U.S. then Green Building Council did is they put together this uh, ND program, which is neighborhood, lead neighborhood, and they began to look at, at, at what would be the criteria that would govern the successful development of a community rather than a building. Uh, and, and they set up a series of pilot projects across uh, North America to see how communities are developed and what are the key issues associated with, uh, with uh, those initiatives. And uh, the city of Vancouver and the project team applied uh, and submitted the whole of the Southeast Falls Creek development area uh, to the U.S. Green Building Council as part of that pilot program. And as of yesterday, uh, the president awarded this project a lead platinum designation, which is the second one, I think, in uh, North America. Dockside Green in Victoria uh, was the first. I think they were awarded a, a month or so ago, two months ago. Part of what makes that, uh, I think, important is, is that that deals with not just you know, the, the, the energy-related issues on buildings, but it deals with uh, you know, environment for for uh, other species. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this project has Habitat Island, uh, which is uh, a replacement of foreshore that was lost when this was redeveloped. So it's been, you know, it's a new island, and it's been developed to provide habitat uh, for birds, fish, ducks, geese, uh, and and. Uh, Last, last summer, uh, the herring came back into False Creek, and there was herring row all the way around Habitat Island. First time, I think, in 80 years that the herring have come in and laid. So it's not just that we're dealing with you know, habitation for ourselves, but recognizing that we are just one of, I don't know how many million species it is, but it's a fair number. <laughs> and, and that you know, our, our footprint on the earth uh, impacts those species and that we have some responsibility to engage uh, you know, that broader question right? um, as, as we uh, look after uh, our own habitation. So I think that that designation from the U.S. Green Building Council is, uh, is really significant and important to, uh, to Vancouver and, and, 
and recognizes you know, the huge collaborative effort that was undertaken here in order to make this project work. Roger Bailey, we thank you for being with us today. Well, thank you. When we come back, we'll be joined by urban planner Gordon Price, who will talk about how Vancouver is helping us rethink what cities can be as Traveling On Radio continues after the break. Traveling On is moving on to a new name. Soon, we'll begin broadcasting as World Footprints Radio, a name that better reflects our celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Our shows will continue fostering global citizenship and a greater social consciousness by promoting values like travel philanthropy, volunteerism, and sustainability. Join us on this journey to leave positive footprints and build lasting legacies one step at a time. Be sure to put Friday, April 9th through Sunday, April 11th on your calendars and join World Footprints Radio in New Orleans for the 27th Annual French Quarter Festival. This award-winning three-day event showcases the city's best live local music, cuisine, and culture, and admission is free. Enjoy nearly 170 musical performances throughout the French Quarter and more than 105 food and beverage booths from some of the city's culinary elite, making up the world's largest jazz brunch. For more information on the largest free music festival in the South, visit fqfi.org or foreverneworleans.com. Now, more of the Travelin' On Radio Show. As the world spotlight shined on Vancouver during the Olympics, we were able to get an appreciation for what makes Vancouver a special place. Former Vancouver City Councilor and Director of Simon Fraser University's City Program, Gordon Price, recently sat down with us to talk about Vancouver, the impact of the games, and how the city is getting us to rethink urbanism in the 21st century. Gordon, welcome. Thanks, Ann. We're very happy to have you here. We're, we're here because of the Olympic Games. The world, over a quarter of a million people, have descended upon Vancouver. Talk to us about what these games represent to Vancouver and maybe talk about it within the context of the overall development and the place of of this city, perhaps in the world hierarchy of great cities. Mm-hmm. I was on city council when we put the bid in, and I have to remember thinking at the time, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. I mean, there are more athletes in the gay games that we had here in 1990, and a quarter million people is about the number of people that we would have for tourists during the high season and summer in any event. Now, obviously, it's a, a different scale of things just because of the attention, a lot more media. But, you know, in terms of stressing the infrastructure, uh, if you plan it right, and I think in two respects we did that, we didn't overbuild. There is not a lot of new facilities here. In mm-hmm. fact, with the exception of a curling rink and a speed skating oval, at least in the city of Vancouver, that's pretty much it. And the second thing is I think we took a very proactive approach to transportation. We set a target for reducing the number of vehicles moving around the city by about 30%, and it looks like we reached that and Actually, things have worked out remarkably well. That may be one of the great legacies. The Mm -hmm. single biggest experiment in transportation planning in North America is one of the planners said, and we're going to learn a lot from that. I think it may be the most important legacy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, Gordon, the uh, one of the, the legacies that this city will leave uh, with regards to the game is its uh, sustainability. Um, you know, we have from the uh, Olympic Village to um, other structures, of course, the transportation. I mean, there's been a, a real strong movement towards sustainability. Is that uh, played up a little bit, or uh, is, is Well, I think, it's, Jenya, it's been played up in this respect. It was something that we were moving to do anyway, would have done anyway. Mm-hmm. 
perhaps it's moved the agenda up a little more quickly. But, you know, frankly, I don't think a lot. The city council just passed uh, a bylaw for certainly single-family housing, the greenest in North America. Mm -hmm. The Olympic Village was always intended right from uh, the early part of this century to be uh, energy efficient and now what we call sustainable. But that was always part of the vision, even before we thought of the games. Actually, going back to 1990, I remember now, we had a report that suggested that that part of False Creek uh, be something that would be significantly greener Mm -hmm. in a world context. And we just got, in fact, an announcement yesterday that it's uh, LEED ND, Neighborhood Development. And uh, as far as we know, is at this point anyway, the greenest neighborhood in the world. And I hope not for long. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But other projects, I think, would likewise say the uh, green roof on the convention center and the media Mm -hmm. center now. You know, that was always part of the design. Now, I'll give Vanock, the Olympic Organizing uh, Committee, some credit here. They did really try and push the boundaries of what it meant to be green in the context of the Olympics. Could have gone a little farther, but hey, they made the effort. However, I would say that this trend towards sustainability and integrating it into the way that we develop and live and work in our city, that had always been on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And that actually is is really part of this notion or this uh, idea of Vancouverism. We don't really hear too many cities that actually have a brand for planning, but Vancouver certainly does. And that became known as a way of building high-density communities and making Uh, urban living more hospitable and more inviting to a wide range of people, various classes, various activities to really make this a vibrant city. And Vancouver gets a lot of publicity and kudos for that. Talk to us about what Vancouver is, Vancouverism is, and how it's changed over time because we understand that even in the housing, it's, it's gone from having these tall pinpoint towers to being something different, as we've now seen in the Olympic Village area, which is going to be adaptively reused for housing for all people of all income levels. You know why I think we've got this image, why there's even a name Vancouverism? (laughs) It's that kind of postcard view. You Uh can see high-rise buildings across water. Very powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people say, oh, very Hong Kong. Well, not even close to those kind of densities, but effectively the same kind of image. Because you can see the density, it's in the form of towers. Mm -hmm. You can see where we have concentrated it right in the downtown core. I think that's a large part of it. But, you know, I look at cities in the east, certainly Manhattan, Mm -hmm. uh, parts of Toronto and Montreal. They've got uh, higher densities in many cases that go back to the late 19th century and early 20th. So what we've done is exceptional in this sense. It's a small city that's embraced density and done it in a very modern form Mm -hmm. and found a way to make it livable. That's the word we've been using here since the 1960s, the livable city. It's the Mm -hmm. name of our plans. Well, why? Well, I think as much for two reasons. It's we haven't really had a choice. Mm -hmm. You look at this town, it's bounded by the mountains and the water. Even the peninsula that we're on here with our highest density neighborhoods in the central business district, it's a peninsula off a peninsula, almost an island. Mm -hmm. So we used up our land base almost immediately from the time the Europeans showed up here with the arrival of the Canadian Pacific Railway. Bang! (laughs) Like any suburban developers, man, they had cut up the landscape into lots and sold it off. We did it around the streetcars. And by, I would say, the 1920s, we'd pretty much used up our land. And so we had no choice but to, quote, what we now call densification. 
I do think the other factor here, though, is that the elites, the decision makers, the people who were really running the show, recognized that, hey, uh, they're going to be living here, too. Mm-hmm. I always like what Jared Diamond, the author of Collapse, said. How do you uh, judge a society that has leadership? It's when they take responsibility for the consequences of their decisions. Really? Is there any such thing? Yeah, <laughs> sure. The Dutch. The Dutch. Ah. They knew they had to build really good dikes because there wasn't any high ground. <laughs> Those <laughs> things failed. Everybody drowns. <laughs> And I think in a sense here, they certainly recognize they could make money doing it. Mm. Uh, it's always a literal bottom line as well as a metaphorical one. But I, I think by the 1960s, when the city was looking at urban renewal, like most, quote, urban renewal, they had identified blight, send in the bulldozers. Uh, if it had just been a case of building for the poor, while the elites move on to high ground, in our case we call it Shaughnessy, I don't think we would look very much different. Mm-hmm. And, and they certainly intended to build the freeways. All of that was ready to go. But through, I think, fortunate politics and circumstances of our time, uh, we didn't take that, that course. And, and so what we have now is, I think, a combination of, um, well, different classes and incomes and lifestyles, all pretty much learning how to live together. And that includes the very poorest in the city on the downtown east side, who are literally blocks from mm-hmm. some of the richest. And many people look upon that as a great criticism or failure. I see it in a way as a kind of success. When uh, the residents of Vancouver were allowed to vote on uh, whether or not to allow the games here, was part of the concern, just out of curiosity, was part of the concern uh, the potential of overdeveloping? Because as you mentioned, your land mass you know, it was shrinking, basically. Was that part of the concern, or do you know what the concern was for those people who actually voted against it? Because I heard it was a pretty close vote, actually. Uh, yes, but interestingly, it was a vote that was conducted by the party that came into power who really kind of sent out a message that they were against the games. Politically, they didn't really want to have to say that, so they figured that if they had a vote on it, there was a good chance it would fail. Well, I think when they got into power, kind of unexpectedly, they realized that if the vote actually came out against the games, it would probably not be a good political scenario for them. So you have this kind of ironic situation where the party of the left uh, really got behind it. And by doing so, I think, gave it a far broader acceptance than it would have been achieved otherwise. Now, there's still a lot of people who are opposed to the game, and I think the real reason is, no, not the development, which has been pretty modest in the scheme of things. It's just we're spending a lot of money, mm-hmm. a billion dollars on security. You know, this is this is expensive stuff, no matter how you cut it, and there's lots of other reasons and other good things that you can think of to spend that money on. But remember, these were still very good times uh, prior to the economic collapse, the recession, which uh, maybe affected Canada less, but certainly has affected us. And uh, these difficult trade-offs. So every time government makes a cutback or doesn't fund a program, the finger's pointed at the Olympics, sometimes justifiably, sometimes not. But I think that's where the contention comes from. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things about cities, as, as, as we talk about them and how they're performing, we, we've touched on some themes today, uh, safe, clean, green, transit, density, schools, uh, just a mix of people. That is part of the formula for Vancouver. Is it working? It seems to be working here better than almost any other place in North America, just from my cursory observation. Well, Ian, you know, take on you it? just gave a great definition of why people go to the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> Clean, green, safe, good schools, 
more affordable housing, right. more space. Ah, all those great things, and uh, they're very appealing. <laughs> and I can certainly understand why people make suburban choices. But the strategy here, very explicitly, I remember Larry Beasley, our, our planner at the time, saying if we can offer everything that they have in the suburbs, the clean, the green, the safe, and the good schools, many people will make a choice to live downtown because we can offer them things that they can't get out there. We have the cultural institutions, the restaurants, the diversity. We have a far more, well, we have the legacy of all the great investments from Stanley Park to the Orpheum Theater that have, were made by previous generations that can't possibly be duplicated in the same way. So we, I think we have a, actually a pretty good working dynamic. If, if someone wants to make a choice at a certain point in their life uh, to raise their kids in the suburbs, terrific. The kids themselves will probably hot-tail it for the city as soon as they can get out you know, of those suburban bedrooms. Absolutely. And then, as uh, someone said, you go to the city to find DNA, and then you go to the suburbs to procreate it. And, you know, that's, that's another great choice in life. But the thing is to have the choices. Right. And then if you want to come back after the kids are gone and you want to downsize and you want the flexibility that comes from living in a condo that you can just turn the key on and then go, you know, traveling and have that range of choices that you remember from when you were growing up, say, uh, you know, in the West End when you were <laughs> a swinging single, as we used to call them, and we did back then. Well, terrific. It's those range of choices. So long as you offer people the basics. Now, uh, you know, that's a, a nice scenario to have, isn't it? And we don't meet it in every respect. There are trade-offs you really do have to make. And having lived in the downtown, I, I'm well aware of them. It's noisier. It's not as clean. Yes, you are that thing we call diversity and vibrancy. Uh, well, it can come with some qualifications. Mm -hmm. uh, nonetheless, I do think that it's very clear that when we ended up with way more children being born down here in the peninsula than we ever expected. We built an elementary school for it, but it was quickly oversubscribed. Mm. When we see a far greater diversity of people wanting to make this choice, our problem has ironically been that we haven't got enough affordable housing to offer for the demand that's there. And we see it now happening in the suburbs as well. Many of them are saying, hey, hey, why should we have to go downtown Vancouver to get what they've got? We had like our version of urbanism being built in the suburbs. In many ways, I do think that that's the most interesting development in Vancouver. Not what you see down here. It's what's happening out in the places the tourists don't go, where they're really embracing a very high and very sophisticated level of sustainability and urbanism. And it's the suburban leaders that are calling for it. They want the transit. They want density and the cultural amenities that go with it. And they're prepared to make the investments to do it. Now, that's something uh, I wouldn't have expected to have seen maybe even in my lifetime, but it's being embraced very quickly. And, and speaking of feet and talking about the streetscape and the street level here in Vancouver, there's this notion in planning that the first 20 feet of that building is mm -hmm. the part that matters most. And when I look at downtown Vancouver and I look at uh, some of the uh, neighborhoods and uh, these uh, commercial corridors, there seems to have been a very conscious effort to put in street-level retailing and to have services that are very high-quality services that encourage people to walk from their homes and, and have this extraordinary urban experience that's not car-dependent, that's not focused on traveling to an asphalt parking lot and going into a shopping mall. I, I think when we think about why the quality of life here in Vancouver 
is so high relative to other urban places. That's part of it, and that really seems to be something that makes this place different than other cities. You asked about you know what we call Vancouverism, and you mm-hmm. mentioned these point towers. Just as important is that first 30 feet, 30, yeah. 20, 30 feet. And for that, we create these podiums. And mm-hmm. along the streetscape, which we move right up to the sidewalk in a neighborhood like Yale Town, you have to have uh, transparency. We don't allow blank walls. Mm. Some rain protection. There's canopies overhead. Again, mm. a requirement. And we don't allow um, too many um, single uses. So, you, again, a range of choices. You have to be pretty skilled on how you do it. And we made some mistakes. Uh, we provided too much retail, for instance, in many neighborhoods. The density looked very high, but in fact not high enough to support the mm-hmm. amount of floor space that we said had to be retail. So now we allow maybe townhouses or purpose-designed open space. So it's the kind of skill set that developers and community builders either knew intuitively or had learned to do mm. right into the 1920s. Uh, sufficient density, mix of uses, good design, and transportation choice. You put that together, and as you can find so many great examples up to the 1920s and 30s, uh, these are still some of the best neighborhoods we've ever built. And really what Vancouverism is doing is trying to take those formulas that we kind of knew, forgot, and now are relearning how to do in a modern form. So the architecture may look very glassy, very modern. The towers may be higher. Mm -hmm. But in fact, the densities of people aren't much different than they were in the late 19th century. And that walking that you're talking about, well, it's basically people doing the same kind of pedestrian patterns that the city was first laid out around, probably going to the equivalent of transportation streetcar systems that we now do in the form of, say, light rail, SkyTrain, or the trolley buses. But the people are walking basically on the same sidewalks that every generation has, pretty much doing the same things. So in my neighborhood in the West End, I'm about oh, two and a half kilometers from work. Mm-hmm. I can cycle. Did today. In fact, uh, yes, I saw your cycling helmet. It's a beautiful day. It huh? is a beautiful but day. if it's raining, I may well choose to take a bus or a trolley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm running late, or i got to go somewhere, I'll grab a taxi. Uh, got to go up to City Hall, I can just walk two blocks here to take the Canada line. It's choices, choices. So I get to mix and match. It's me who's making the decision. And, oh, that's from a planning point of view, terrific. You're not imposing Mm -hmm. your decisions, your top-down planners, or you're not taking something away from people. You're giving them more choices. Mm -hmm. But the the key is this. You've got to have a sufficient density, and that can be a range, by the way. We're just not talking about high-rises. You don't have to do that. And as the Olympic Village shows, something we modeled after Portland, Oregon, the Pearl District there, it's perfectly possible to do this in a medium-rise form, mm. and God knows uh, Washington is probably the place everyone in North America would point to because of your height limits. Mm-hmm. So you've learned how to do a certain richness of medium-rise development right. that a lot of other places can learn from, too, and just as you can learn from us. In our closing minutes here, we've had a chance to to be here in this city during this time with hordes of media from all over the place and some of the criticisms and some of the critiques of Vancouver I found very interesting as you know as we've been talking about some of the things that make Vancouver work one of the critiques has been about transit or it's not working well enough and and I want to explore this issue because these really seem to be criticisms at the margins yes. about the city. Because fundamentally, everything that you've said, if 90% of urban communities 
or like Vancouver, we'd be having an entirely different set of discussions about urban life, urban problems to some degree. It, it just is one of those things that I find interesting from an outsider's perspective, and I'm wondering how ingrained that critique or this critique at the margins of Vancouver, perhaps not being world-class enough in the eyes of folks who are here, because it's still a great city, even mm -hmm. if you're in that very top percentile. Well, I understand that most of the criticism is coming from the next Olympic host city. Uh, the Brits. The Brits. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I welcome that, and I agree with you. It tends to be on the margin. But we'll see. Look, it's only about, what, the fourth day into the Olympics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but generally, yeah, if we were going to have, like, real problems, we would have been uh, very <laughs> aware of them by now. I welcome those problems on the margin. Um, but, you know, I don't think too many people I know certainly uses the word world, word world class seriously. Mm. Look, we're a town of two million people. My God, that constitutes practically a neighborhood in a world city yeah. uh, that's truly world class. You know, cities of two million, by the way, are very comfortable size. If you mm -hmm. look at that list that, oh, publications like The Economist put out, World's Most mm -hmm. Livable so there's a lot of them uh, that are around that two million size, the Vienna's. The Helsinki's, uh, you know, the Purse, the Melbournes. And we all seem to cluster more or less around the 49th parallel, too, interestingly. So I, I think there's a lot to be said for a city that's new, that's rich because of our location as a port. Uh, we tend to forget that. It's our reason for being. We're just incredibly well located, being close mm -hmm. to Asia, with a deep water, ice-free port, through which the wealth of practically a quarter of a continent flows through. We, our infrastructure is relatively new, and we have a policy of updating it continually. So we spend 1% to uh, we replace 1% of our sewer and water systems every year, roll it over every 100 years. And the taxpayers are prepared to be taxed for that. We have to go to the voters every election for a capital plan. Uh, as far as I know, only one of them has failed. And, and indeed, there's hardly any discussion about it. it it's just checked off and approved as a matter of course. I do think that is pretty fundamental. If you are going to have the quality of life that people expect here, you also expect them to pay for it. And you have to kind of be a little hard-nosed about that. You don't get nothing for free, mm. at least without paying or rise, uh, incurring that debt on the next generation. And I think that's why sustainability here is so profound and deeply rooted. I, I, and I don't want to overdo it. Uh, look, we're just as superficial in our consumption as most places because we are a rich place. But I do think because it is so beautiful and because it is so new, people have a sense of obligation to pass on a kind of paradise. Don't want to exaggerate that, but partly because nature is so in your face here, that obligation to pass it on at least in as good a condition, if not better, than you found it, I think still prevails in the culture here. Uh, at least certainly something I felt when I was on council. And I see it manifested, for instance, in the seawall, the path that runs all the way around the water. Mm -hmm. Every generation has had an obligation to extend that from the one back in around 1908, which first started building it. And every opportunity that we've had, we put another little piece into play. And you can see it at the Olympic Village, the best we've ever done. But with that goes an understanding is that the waterfront belongs to the public. Mm -hmm. And even if it's going to be privately held, the assumption when we come to develop it is it will go into the public realm. Mm -hmm. And it will be maintained. And it will be used. It's our great public space. It's free. It's where you recreate. It's what, where you go when you want to get a sense of who we are and why we live here.
Indeed. Gordon Price, director of the city program at Simon Fraser University. Former counselor, we thank you for being with us today. Well, thanks, Ian. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure to share some travel time with you. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week, same time, same frequency. And until then, leave positive footprints and build a meaningful legacy one step at a time. Traveling On is moving on to a new name. Soon, we'll begin broadcasting as World Footprints Radio, a name that better reflects our celebration of responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Our shows will continue fostering global citizenship and a greater social consciousness by promoting values like travel philanthropy, volunteerism, and sustainability. Join us on this journey to leave positive footprints and build lasting legacies one step at a time.